everybody, good morning. We are going to have a conversation about labor, about unions, about what it means to be working class and to cover the working class and to recognize the kind of solidarity and class consciousness which has entered into journalism. Uh, you look no further than the news in the past couple of days. We talked about this yesterday, whether it's Deadspin uh, and everyone sort of leaving en masse or whether it's WHYY uh, in Philadelphia uh, winning their union fight um, and, and, and joining the ranks of many others, including KCRW um, and tons of other public radio stations. I wanted to tell a brief anecdote. Uh, Adrian was up here earlier, and me and Adrian worked together at KPBS, and in the short time that I worked there, we had a huge union fight, and they brought in um, uh, someone, a union buster, right? They brought in someone to basically tell us why it was a good idea not to join a union. And this person was paid thousands of dollars by our management to do this um, and came in to tell us all these reasons why our union was going to be bad and problematic and all of these other things. And of course, he was doing this to a room full of journalists. Um, big mistake, because if you're going to come in with sort of outlandish uh, and propaganda-ish statements about why things are the way they are, don't do it in a room full of journalists. Um, and, and so that was a very inspiring moment to me where I was like, oh, we do what we do and we're good at it and you can't do this to us. Um, and the solidarity that was created in that moment of, of forming that union and having to fight against people trying to give us narratives that we knew very clearly were, were false was an amazing experience. Um, and part of that is, is, is that feeling that is happening in newsrooms and not just in public radio newsrooms, at the LA Times, at so many places. Um, is really kind of, it's a, it's a groundswell that's occurring. We wanted to talk about that. We wanted also to talk about it because we can't be covering what's happening in this country without covering work. Um, and whether it's this sort of nebulous thing, the future of work, um, we're very much in the now of work. So I want to introduce my brilliant panelists. Uh, let me first introduce Carla Murphy. I'm really, really, really grateful that Carla came here to talk with us. Um, her perspectives on media, the industry, and work are going to be invaluable. Come on, Carla. Come on. Come on up. Carla is a social justice journalist who's reported for Color Lines uh, and the iFund at the Nation Institute, now what is known as Type Media, among her highlights, going to Haiti months after the 2010 earthquake, covering New York City's anti-stop and frisk movement, getting arrested in the South Bronx during Occupy, and then getting freed by the community. Now most of Carla's media's work is journalism reform. So the reason that she is here today. Um, she's an editorial consultant on Lewis Raven Wallace's new podcast, The View from Somewhere. She's researching journalists of color who've left journalism, uh, which is a really, really important thing to, to talk about, um, through the News Integrity Initiative at CUNY. And she's been the recently elected vice president of the Journalism and Women's Symposium, otherwise known as JAWS. Last but not least, she's an editor for Echoing Ida, a national media project and community for black women and non-binary writers. Um, I also want to introduce Afi Yellow Duke. So Afi, give me less to say about her. But, but I will say Afi is recently part of WNYC's Death, Sex, and Money, where she's an associate producer. Afi was at StoryCorps for a long time, including during uh, their rather extended battle to unionize, speaking of unionizing, and Afi has been doing the unpaid labor of creating the 
people of color POCs in audio directory, which came out of last year's conference and is an amazing resource. And all of the people who worked on that were journalists of color, were audio makers of color, and they did not get paid for it. And that is also something we need to talk about in terms of who's doing the work. Um, and finally, do I have Emily? Come on up, Emily. Emily Gundelsberger is a journalist and author of On the Clock, which is a book about technology, low-wage work, and how the two combine to make everyone miserable and insane. Basically, it's about how capitalism is killing us. Um, Emily, uh, I'm going to let Emily tell you a little bit about her own story, but Emily uh, lost her newspaper job and went on to take jobs at places like Amazon, McDonald's, and a call center. Um, and when we were having conversations about this, told me that, you know, it is embarrassing to understand what work looks like when you actually do those jobs versus how we think about them when we report on them. Um, so that's the title, is All Workplaces Are Workplaces About Power. And we chose that title because we really want us to think very strongly and deeply about power, what it means, how it functions, and how it's functioning in this room. The power that we have, the power that we don't have, the power that we have over each other, and the power that we have to shape narratives. Um, we are incredibly, an incredibly powerful bunch of people, right? A lot of people listen to what we do or what we put our hands on, and that power needs to be recognized. But even within this room, the power dynamics are all over the place. And unless we start having those conversations and confronting the way that power is operating, we're not going to be able to report on systems of power. We ourselves work inside a system. That system needs to be addressed. That system needs to be understood because otherwise we're just going out there kind of blindly into the world without being able to analyze our positionality. And so this is what we're here to do with these brilliant guests. All right, ready? Before I even get to this, I just want to ask a basic question. And if you want to stand up when I say these things, stand up. How many of people in this room are freelancers? How many folks are part of a union? How many of you have faced precarity in your work life? That's not being able to pay bills, that's... And the whole room stands up. Welcome to journalism. Um, how many of you have considered leaving journalism or audio storytelling because of that precarity? Hi, guys. How many of you manage people or have power over other people in the work that you do? So there is a mix of us in this room, all of us facing pro possibly problems that are incredibly overlapping. Um, and that is some of the stuff we are going to talk about. Um, let me first start off by asking um, my panelists to talk a little bit about the way they have covered or understand the coverage of work and working class um, in their reporting or in their careers. And I'm going to begin with Carla. Hey, so um, the proximate reason that I'm here is because a few weeks ago, Descent published an essay of mine um, called Why We Need a Working Class Media. And that's how I got the call from Sandhya. Um, so I left journalism uh, towards the beginning of 2016. And I've made the decision recently to switch from, I mean, I'm always a reporter. I think of myself that way. But I made a decision to switch to essays. And this essay is the second one that I've written. Um, so it's called Why We Need a Working Class Media. And it's very personal. 
Um, it includes my definition of what working class is, and we know that's kind of that's kind of like a Rorschach kind of term. It really depends on who's talking. According to mainstream media and progressive media, it's a white male in Ohio, preferably in a factory. We know that. Um, that's not my definition, and that's part of why I wrote this essay. And the essay, um, I talk about um, growing up in New York City as an immigrant um, and the, how that shaped my perspective. Um, and in terms of wanting a working class media, I think the thing that's probably most relevant for you guys here is that I wrote it as a way to figure out who else was thinking this way too. I was looking for company, I'm gonna be really honest. So that's why I'm here and I'm glad that you guys wanted to talk about it. Um, and it's kind of a meditation. So one of the things I included was kind of a, a three minimum components that I would wanna see if we were to have something called a working class media, again, defined how I'm defining it. And the three minimum components, and I hope to have a generative discussion about this, whether in this room or outside of it, um, three minimum components. One, anger. Um, from where I sit, I am pissed a lot of the time when I see coverage um, broadly about anything and how uh, the working class is talked about. Um, I don't see news media that's for members of the working class. I see news media that is about members of the working class for an upper middle class audience somewhere in Greenwich, I guess, I don't know. Um, so the anger, so I'll give you a, for example, um, I think about in 2015 or 16, Forbes magazine put um, Kylie Jenner on its cover and the description was um, the youngest self-made billionaire. And I took great umbrage to the words self-made in that title. Now I'm not, let's be clear, I'm not mad at Kylie Jenner. I'm mad at Forbes. Um, so that's one of the things that I don't think that I'm the only member of the working class who you, you pick up on these little things, right? So using the term self-made to apply it to a billionaire, that really pisses me off. Um, and I think anger is a vital component. I don't think we should be afraid of anger. I think anger is quite productive, actually. Um, so one, minimally anger. Um, two, the second one, I, I think we need an analysis of power from the underside of power. And by that, what I meant is, and I kind of went back to when I was a kid, and, I, I, and I'm gonna make some assumptions here about other members of the working class. But I think that if you've grown up in poverty or, with, or in lack, one of the things that I always remember is how authorities interacted with either my parent, my guardian, or my community. So whether that's police officers, nurses, doctors, school teachers, social workers, anyone with authority to go into poor neighborhoods and document what's happening there. Um, I think that I would love to see news media that's analyzing power relations in our society from the perspective of the under, right? Um, and then the third component of it that I would like to see is right now, I find that generally working class issues are covered as problems. So people appear, you know, talking about their problems, but they don't appear talking as though they have a full life. So you can be poor and you can be working class. You can still be happy. You can still find joy. You can still want parenting tips. 
right? Like all the stuff that you take advantage, like a, a upper middle class suburb or a middle class suburb takes advantage of um, in the news pages. I would like to see that talked about from a working class perspective too. Um, whatever that media is, it can't just talk about the problems. It has to talk about the whole life. And I'll stop there. I was, I'm hoping for a generative conversation. I don't have answers. I'm hoping to, to just dis, to name things and discuss these things more, especially as it affects our industry. I think this is so important that working class has become a kind of mediaism for white men. Um, and you can try just Googling, which I maybe did while I was making these slides last night. Um, you can just try Googling working class and you can see what comes up. And I think Carla's point actually really is important in that we had after, after the election, there was the narrative that the media was very fond of, which was that this is the, rise, the rising up of the working class uh, white men. Um, against changing demographics and 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 all of uh, and, and you know poverty and whatever and the, the status quo and a lot of people who a lot a lot of black women especially said no this is about race we need to talk about it. this is about race and finally a few years later the rest of the media caught up and said oh yeah this was about race um, but it, what it was also about is missing the intersection between working class and race and gender and various other things and not understanding how those things came together. And I think that we need to expand our consciousness of, of those intersections. And with that, I wanna turn to Afi um, to ask a little bit about what it was like. So we're gonna turn from outside and covering to inside and understanding and gaining working class solidarity with your coworkers as a journalist, what it was like to organize over the past couple of years as you did. Hi everyone. Um, so yeah, I worked at StoryCorps for about two years, um, and I basically, to give context to, for those of you who don't know, um, StoryCorps is an oral history nonprofit based in Brooklyn. Uh, people travel the country recording stories of people in this room, people across the country, um, and they basically, the um, StoryCorps unionized with the Communication Workers of America, the local is called 1180, which is primarily um, a public sector uh, shop in New York City. Um, but has increasingly worked with nonprofits. Um, so the StoryCorps campaign started, um, basically the or workers went public in the summer of 2017. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't working at StoryCorps at the time, but I came to the organization um, right after they, you know, won their vote to start the process of bargaining and, you know, or like, their election and to start the process of bargaining for their first contract. So I joined the bargaining committee pretty soon after that in the fall of 2017 and was on the bargaining committee until I left the organization a few weeks ago. And they actually ratified their first contract a week ago yesterday. So it's a big deal. So that, that took two years, which is also, I should say, a very long time and not, you know, first contracts tend to take like a year or so. So it's a little bit longer than average. Um, and during that time, I know, I should say also, I've never been like on staff, as a, like in a unionized position before. So I was learning a lot as I was on the bargaining committee. And I think the biggest thing I learned and the most important thing I learned was just really to think about like how a contract, which ultimately is a tool that you have to enforce as the workers who are, you know, protected under it, is that it's not just about like numbers and like, you know, yes, you have like the big ticket items like wages and healthcare and other benefits, but it's also about like creating like a community of care and thinking about the culture of your organization. 
um, we did a lot of work to think about the ways in which our unit was not just people who like do the content creation, so not just like production staff like myself. Um, it was also people who do like more administrative work or like programming support and just like people who are parents, people who are queer and trans people, people of color, women, what have you, all sorts of people were in the unit. And that really made us think a lot harder about what it meant to codify something that would protect all of these people, people with diverging interests and needs, and lots of conversation had to happen. Um, conversations that start with how are you doing and what do you need and what can we do to help you get there and how do we get that in writing. <laughs> Um, and that was really powerful, like really deeply powerful, something I will probably take with me throughout my career. Um, and, you know, it was a long fight. Like we mentioned, two years is a really long time. Um, a lot of people who started the organizing process did not see it through and left the organization. Um, and a lot of people, you know, there was a lot of like, you know, as people, new people came on board, there was a lot of talking to them and making sure they understood, like, hey, this is what we're doing here. This is what it means to be a part of a union. This is how we talk about that here um, in an environment that was, I think, really healing from a very long and intense organizing process. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of creative things we did over the course of that two years to really make sure people understood both people in the unit and also people, there's a lot of like middle managers at StoryCorps. So a lot of those people who aren't necessarily you know, a lot of managers in unionized places are told like not to talk to their like unionized staff about the union, but it was also like we had to kind of put the messaging out. So like being creative about how to do that, like in the workspace as well as like outside of it to like on social media or like to people like you all. Um, so that was really powerful. I think that whole process really was powerful and it, you know, really allowed us to think more deeply about like what it meant to kind of like be in a mission-driven workplace and make sure that like the workspace and like how you do the work also aligns with the mission of an organization. And I can talk more about that later, but I'll start there. Thank you, Afi. And, and I'm gonna ask you um, in the next round a little bit about some of your other stuff, but I think that uh, how many people have been part of not just a union, but a unionizing process in this room? Did you find, and I mean, you can just kind of yell out, did you find that it, that it brought solidarity and kind of meaning to your work in a way that maybe it didn't quite have before? I think it's really interesting to think about the way that it might change us as journalists and the way that it might change us as, in how we report. Um, and this is why I want to make a turn again from sort of looking inside to going outside. We're going to be flipping back and forth throughout this. Um, and, and, and turn to Emily uh, and ask her a little bit about when, we, when I was talking to Emily um, she was telling me about the kind of the actual experience of what met, what happened when you went to work at Amazon and how that's very different from just reporting on people who work there um, and how surprised you were. Yeah, so basically I wrote a book that came out in July um, that sort of put together three years of... Uh, it's sort of like nickel and dimes if you've read that, uh, it's except sort of updated for like the degree to which technology uh, times and monitors and like applies statistics to everything you do. I'm sure everybody in journalism here, like you've got metrics, right? Yeah, yeah, you know metrics. So just imagine that you have that same level of metrics that's like, but like exponentially bigger and you're working at a McDonald's or you're working in an Amazon warehouse or you're working in a call center and the pressure is still just as high and you're just as closely timed, but it's also 
like our jobs are stressful. Like when I worked at newspapers, my job was really stressful. Uh, but you also are able to, at least I am, I find satisfaction in my work. I find meaning in my work. Uh, I get something out of it uh, that makes the stress sort of worth it for me and I'm sure for the rest of you as well. Uh, but when you, like the technology of the past like 15 or 20 years has made it possible to de-skill and to like routinize these jobs so that there is no pleasure in it. There is no meaning. It's just you have to keep up with Amazon's scan gun and walk like 13 to 16 miles a day, which is what I usually clocked when I was working uh, in an Amazon warehouse in Southern Indiana. Or like when you, when I worked in a giant call center taking calls for AT&T, which is actually my own cell phone provider, which was kind of interesting. Um, you basically, dignity was valued at zero. So if someone called up and was calling you horrible names uh, or just like cussing at you, you were literally not allowed to hang up. Um, and like no matter what they said, it was just not, your, your dignity was valued at zero and your bathroom breaks were all timed down to the second and you would be, you know, marked at all of these jobs. You would get in trouble if you clocked in a minute late because, you know, it, and you can't clock in a minute early or clock out a minute late to make up for it. It's like you have to be there exactly at nine or you're gonna, or exactly at seven or whenever, or you get, you know, reamed out. Frankly, the, the first job that I did was, an, was at this Amazon warehouse, uh, which is where I went. Um, after my newspaper closed out under me, it was the third uh, media organization that had closed while I was working there. Uh, and I, it was pretty heartbreaking because I'd been there a while and I really loved it. I went off to work at this Amazon warehouse and I really did think that my job was very stressful. Um, and it was. Stress is stress no matter where it comes from. Uh, but it was frankly, really embarrassing to me to realize exactly how uh, different uh, or how off my idea of what work stress was uh, compared to like working at Amazon. Like I was in a lot of pain and what really blew my mind was I expected people to there to think of this as like this uniquely awful like ridiculous, insane job, but they did not. A lot of people who worked there did hate it, and Amazon is hated by its workers in a way I have not seen anywhere else. It is remarkable. But, like, people did say, like, it's got good benefits. Uh, like, I like knowing that my hours aren't gonna change, like, week to week, all of those things. Like, it was regarded as, like, a pretty decent job. And I found that in the reaction to my book, which I found really interesting. Uh, in that there is such this enormous divide between people who read it from like the media and from like influential classes uh, who are always horrified. Like uh, one of the details that all the reviews has picked out of my book is that in the Amazon warehouse I worked at, there were uh, vending machines that would dispense free pain medication because people wanted, needed so much of it that they were going to the, the on-site nurse's office and making these big lines that would clog up the, the thing. Everybody who I talked to in the media, and probably some, a lot of you are just like, that is crazy. 
that's like 15 miles a day walking, like free pain medicine that they're just giving out because you can't bring anything into the warehouse with you. Like, but the other side of that is that like there's tons of people who like I've seen them review the book on Amazon, on Goodreads, like they've emailed me and a lot of them say like, yes, that is like, that is exactly what my job is like. That is, you have described it for the first time. But a lot of them like are like, you were so naive. <laughs> You're ridiculous. How did you not know this? Like, do people really not know this? And I think it comes down to a definition of, the, it's just like a linguistic thing. When I say a good job or a bad job, it means something completely different from what those things mean to like people who are actually working class, people who are actually working hourly for like 12 bucks an hour. And uh, it was a real wake up call for me and uh, I'm never gonna report the same way again, frankly. And there, there shouldn't be that disconnect, like that massive disconnect between people's lived experience and our reporting on them because that means we're just helicoptering in, right? Which is, we've all been told is the wrong, the wrong thing to do. I, I want to pick up on something that Emily mentioned, which was the joy and satisfaction one gets from their work. I wonder how many people in this crowd have said, yeah, in, you know, in some ways, you know, I'm not paid enough, but at least I really love what I do or what I do has meaning. And maybe that's why I keep doing it. I think a lot of us tell ourselves that story from time to time. Um, and there's, there, there's some truth to that. But I want to turn to Carla to ask about how that is, is used um, in order to manipulate the workforce that we are in? Big question. <laughs> um, so I was telling Sandhya earlier that um, I think it took me leaving journalism and looking back on my career. So I started officially in journalism in 2005. So I've been in this game a long time um, and had a little brushes with audio here and there. Um, I used to work for Brian Lehrer on his TV show in New York. Um, and in that time, and, he, and I say officially 2005 because there was a period before that where it was kind of like trying, right? And even after that 2005, again, there, you're in it, but you're kind of still trying, right? Um, I needed the distance to really see how exploitative this industry has been in my experience. Um, and then to also see for myself, and I'll be you know, very honest here um, and vulnerable, to see how I participated in my own exploitation. So I'm speaking just for myself. And, and what also underscores that part that I just said, um, my participation in my own exploitation. So again, participating in an industry where it's normal, where you require unpaid labor in order to advance, right? So this is fine if you come from wealth. And by wealth, I don't mean, you know, billionaire status. By wealth, I mean, quite frankly, a house, assets. That's what I mean. I don't mean income. I mean wealth. There's a distinction between those. And even how we cover what's going on in the country. I watch how people use income and, and wealth as though they're the same thing, and they're not the same thing. Um, but I, I, I looked at my career um, and the things that I, I did because I love journalism and because I love democracy and the idea of contributing to this democracy. And then as a woman of color, as an immigrant, um, I grew up in the 90s. I grew up under Giuliani. Um, I'd been detained, I don't know, before I hit 
18, I probably had been detained two or three times. And I went to a prep school. So if I was getting detained two or three times, can you imagine the black boy who lived next door to me? Knowing where I come from, knowing that my family is full of cops, uh, uh, people who work in hotels, and the maids in the hotels, the woman who works in the sneaker store, uh, <laughs> knowing my family is full of that, and then the fact that I was going to get all of my good, expensive education and come into an industry that was then going to turn around and exploit me, um, it's a lot to swallow. And I'm still swallowing it. Um, because my family can't really understand what is it, what are you doing? And, and I think in a room full of journalists, it's real easy to be like, oh, we love it. Oh, God, I, we do it because we love it. It's real hard to go into my spaces, my neighborhoods, my family, and, and rock with that same explanation. Um, because they're like, wait, you're not getting paid? You live in New York City? How much are you getting paid? It's just the conversations don't translate. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. You absolutely did. Um, and the other thing that I kind of wanted to, to pick your brain about was when we had that conversation about media being, in some, being an illegitimate institution. I wanted to ask you to unpack that a little bit. I'm asking her easy questions. Right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you see this, right? Okay. That's all right. That's all right, girl. We're going to go. We're going to go for it. That's all right. I see where we at. <laughs> So a few weeks ago, I participated in a uh, DEI meeting. So this is diversity, equity, and inclusion for managers and founders and executives. This is a few weeks ago at CUNY through the News Integrity Initiative. CUNY is the City University of New York. Um, so at this meeting, I was one of two research teams. Actually, one of the research teams um, one of the research teams includes the founders of the JLC Slack. Is anyone here on that? You guys familiar with it? No? If you're a journalist of color, you should um, talk to me or someone else and get on the JOC Slack because it is a great and amazing space when you don't have um, coworkers to go to and you need to talk, also for jobs um, and support and just solidarity. Yeah, I'm really surprised that exactly there are thousands of people on, the, on that, right? Wow, okay. So yeah, the JLC Slack, and actually they created a similar list to you recently too. So that was presented at this meeting, the, the audio that you did? It did. Yeah, same thing, right? So that was one research team. And then I'm the other research team of one where I'm looking at journalists of color who've left the industry um, and looking at the impact of the industry on those journalists, right? In the middle of my presentation, I had to face the reality that news media is an illegitimate institution in a democratic republic, right? Um, as a corporate entity, it's quite legitimate. But what I shared with that room and I'll share with you here is that, so let's look at the statistics. Let's just look at race and, and how unrepresentative newsrooms are generally of the society that we're supposed to be covering in a democratic republic, okay? So by race, I think the last statistics I saw for Pew was that 70% of newsrooms across the country are white. Now, break that down, and we don't have these statistics, but break it down. If you go down to, to like, say, a majority-minority city, that same ratio holds, right? Um, and then to add on to that, even for, say, ASNI, which is mostly looking at newspapers, of course, but ASNI has been doing an annual diversity survey since, what, 1978? Um, last year, in 2018, I think only 17% 
of the newspapers asked to share their, their statistics participated. In 2018, 17% of newsrooms decided to be transparent. Okay, so that's just with race. Now with class, we've had 20 years of consolidations, buyouts, layoffs, et cetera. That means that the only people who can survive in this industry must come from wealth. You have to have a subsidy in order to stay in it and to climb in this industry. So that means that most of those newsrooms are probably middle class and up. Now, when I'm looking, and I'm preparing this presentation for this room, and, I, and it's funny, I'm a, I'm, I'm a critic of the media, but even I couldn't swallow that fact that when I was like, well, is this then a legitimate institution? If our job, our role as the fourth estate is to represent and inform this democracy and help people to make better decisions, and quite frankly, not just make better decisions, to know each other. Are we doing a good job at helping each other to know each other? Just a silly example, if the working class is only a white guy in a factory in Ohio, you're not helping people to know each other. If that's what the stock image is. Um, I saw something the other day where someone was parsing news analysis and they noted that, I think the New York Times had sent two different reporters to, I don't remember the town in the middle of the country somewhere. Sorry guys, I don't mean to be all coastal like that, but, uh, <laughs> but the person was making the note that that the black reporter in this town, which was like it was a factory town, that in the black reporter's piece, they actually showed the people who worked, like all the people who worked at the factory, so that would be white people and people of color. Whereas the other piece just didn't. They only talked to white men and got their opinions about Trump. And the other part noted about that is that even those white men don't wanna talk about Trump, and they've said it. They don't want to talk about what's necessarily going on in DC. They want to talk about what's going on in their town. So I, this thing about media is an illegitimate institution is something, when I said it to the room, I said it in kind of a, I mean, I was, I have a lot of feelings about saying it out loud, but I'm a reporter first and foremost. I was an investigative reporter and you follow the data. And when I follow the data, that's where it leads me. And that hurts, but it's also the truth. And I think that we as an industry need to get much better at naming how power works in our industry, naming who we leave out structurally, and naming that diversity, how it's currently defined, is not a fix. To everything about that, particularly the diversity is not a fix, uh, there was actually a great article that was circling in the JOC Slack, which y'all should join, um, about uh, how diversity is the word that white people use when they don't want to talk about race. Um, that is a truth. And uh, it's also not enough. Because if you have a system that is imbalanced and decentered, and a system that centers whiteness, and centers maleness, and centers cisness, and centers um, straightness, that if you have a system, even if you populate it with diverse faces, you haven't changed the system. And the system will win, because this is my personal hashtag, but system's gonna system. And we need to actually be doing that structural work. One of the ways to do that structural work is to do the work that Afi has done over the past year with the POCs and audio directory, 
but I want to ask you a little bit about the kind of work and odd power and odd leaning on that you now get because of your association with that project. Yeah, so first of all, I want to shout out the other four people I worked on this with. Um, some of them are here, some of them are not. If you're here, stand up. Yeah, I don't know if Aaliyah's here. Um, well, Aaliyah Pavani, who's also here. Hi, Aaliyah, there you are. Hey. Um, Zakia Gibbons, who's not here. Uh, Phoebe Wang, who's also not here. And Adiza Egan. So there are five of us. We did this for roughly a year. Um, and, you know, as what's been told about this directory is kind of like it stemmed from, you know, Phoebe's Best New Artist Award acceptance speech last year, which is true. Um, but also, like, this is also, like, what Phoebe said predates what we did. This has been going on, as everyone has said on this panel, and as you all know, for much longer. And we just kind of were tired of hearing what we've been hearing. Like, it's too hard to find people or, like, you know, asking people, our, like, asking people like me who, like, you know, I've only been in this industry for four years. I don't, I shouldn't have to, like, recommend the same five people. Um, so we thought, let's make this thing. And we you know, got so much, so many responses from people all over the world. Um, I think at last count, there were over 800 people um, on the website, pocandaudio.com, if you didn't know, now you know. Um, that process was really just us like thinking through like what is the most secure way to get this information out? Who needs it? Um, who also like, you know, needs it not just as an employer, but like as other people of color, like it's also to like find each other. That's the subtitle of this panel, getting paid and finding each other. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I think like what we noticed was just like, you know, we were starting to like hear from, we basically, the thing we did to make sure that, you know, we wanted to have people think a little bit harder about what it meant to have a directory like this. So, you know, cause honestly it, is, it shouldn't exist. It should not exist. Um, and we wanted people to think about what it meant to use it. So if you go to the website, there is a terms of service. We made a list of things that you needed to reflect on before you then reached out to people listed in the directory, including things like, you know, hiring fair wages, considering how your workplace may be hostile to the same people that you are trying to hire off of the website, considering the fact that like, you know, especially if you are a white person using it as a manager or what have you, um, that, you know, white supremacy exists and that your biases and tastes and class backgrounds and, you know, other identities like will shape how you interact with it and what it means to hire people from it. And quite frankly, if you are using the website and not thinking about those things, that, that makes me personally very nervous um, because that's not, we're not trying to replicate the same systems in that way. We're not trying, we want to like create things that will also like, I mean, we obviously can't ensure that, that those things will happen. We want to make sure that people are, we and myself specifically, I should probably speak for myself, um, but like, I want to make sure that people are using it in a way that is really thinking through like, okay, yes, it means like I can hire someone, but also what does it mean when they get through the door? If I get them into the building I'm working in, like what is that next, what are the next steps I have to do? When you say it shouldn't exist, I want you to expound on that a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's just like, I shouldn't have to create, or we shouldn't have had to created this website because it also requires managers and people to do the work of building those connections themselves. There are people who are paid to do this work. Yeah, there are like diversity in DE&I like experts who you can hire to consult on how to make your workplaces better. I am not one of those people. None of the five of us are those people. Um, and 
that was a thing that we definitely noticed, like people asking those sorts of questions of us, not those people, again. Um, and that's, that's the really hard thing. It shouldn't, that's what it happens. And like, you shouldn't also like then use it to, you know, reach out to those people to ask them to do that same thing. Don't ask the people in the directory to recommend other people. Like, that's not the point. Um, the point is to really think through like, what it means to actually create a more inclusive workforce. And yeah, that might not work. I mean, clearly as Carla mentioned, like there are problems with the system, but if we're going to try within the system, we've got to think a little bit more about the power we all have. So I want to underscore this free labor here that she's done. This is not her job. Her job is to report and to be a producer. That's it, that's the HR function. Thank you. She wasn't hired for that. And the reason I'm using you as, as an example is because this is quite normal for POC, whether it's in audio or print, whatever. Well, they're all mixed now, but yeah, this is really normal. I've, I can't tell you the number of uh, POC reporters who I've seen. You, you see them, they get a job, they're hired as a reporter or whatever, and then, I don't know, six months to a year later, you run into them and they're like, oh yeah, I'm also helping with recruiting. Oh yeah, I'm also, I've just added this to my job description, right? Not getting paid for it though. So that means that your aspirations or as a reporter are either taking a back seat to this now HR function that your newsroom has kind of um, subtly placed on you. Um, that means that the white reporter is just going out doing their job and you're doing double time. And what's happening to your aspirations as a reporter, as a producer? This came up in the other, for the research team that we worked with too. And the DEI consultant in the room after they finished was like, y'all need to monetize that and get paid. Because the DEI consultant knows that there are managers in the room who are going to come to you and say, hey, can you recommend two or three people? There's a donate page on the POC and Audio website. Feel free to donate, that would be nice. Um, also, I mean, this also goes, we we're talking specifically about race, but this also goes for like queer and trans people. This goes for, you know, just insert any other identity here who's like quote unquote marginalized. So like lots of people are doing this work unpaid. And as a manager, this should be a problem for you, for the managers in the room. Do you really want her to be doing this extra work? You want her to be doing journalism, right? Absolutely. Right? You want quality work. Absolutely. That's, I mean... It's a huge thing, and you feel a responsibility. As, as any sort of part of those quote-unquote marginalized communities, you feel a responsibility because you want your newsroom to change. You want the system to change, and someone needs to do it. And if it's not happening, you end up stop, stepping up. But the kind of toll that that can take in terms of time, energy, and just emotional drainingness, that's the word, um, is, is a lot. I want to circle over to Emily for a second and ask you a little bit. First of all, I know that you've been taking notes, so I want to hear what, you've been, what the notes are that you've been taking. Um, but also, um, I love note takers. They are my favorite people. Um, also, uh, I wanted to ask you about a little bit about how your experience changed your reporting um, and, and what that might mean for you in the future and what sort of takeaways I want to can sort of glean from your experience, but also your notes. Oh, I have so many notes. Uh, um, I guess the, like, out of all the things that I've been sort of writing down, the one that I sort of want to emphasize the most uh, is uh, how, to, to what degree, um, we sometimes don't realize that 
we're kind of the upper class uh, and that there's a difference between being broke and being poor. Um, and like, because I've been plenty broke in my day and I don't come from a wealthy family. Uh, but again, like my experience, like seeing, like living with people who do work at Amazon warehouses and call centers and McDonald's and becoming friends with them, it really made it clear to me that I am the upper class and I always will be. And that is just what I was born into uh, because now I, I went to a fancy college and I started, like I come from a middle-class background. Uh, my mom was a teacher, my dad was uh, like a systems engineer. Uh, and again, I went to a, a smancy college and when I was there, I discovered that a whole bunch of people that I knew, like that I met, were secret millionaires. <laughs> uh, has anyone else had that experience? <laughs> yeah, like you're just like, whoa, okay, I guess I'm not wealthy, uh, or I guess I'm like, and after a while you start thinking of yourself as like, you're like middle class, I guess I'm lower middle class, I guess I'm like, I don't know, am I poor? No, you're not, you're really not. <laughs> uh, I know, like I'm not, uh, and the difference is it's just common, like your idea of what common sense is and like where you stand in the world as compared to other people is completely based on like what world you're in, what you surround yourself with. Uh, and in journalism, like we were saying earlier, like right now it is really tilted towards, especially younger people who are getting in right now, uh, people who can afford to do a couple years of unpaid or barely paid work. And that really cuts a lot of people out. Uh, I feel like I was saying earlier, like I feel like I, uh, I graduated in 2006 and I feel like like almost like I sort of like, I'm like hanging off the, the helicopter, like the last helicopter out of Hanoi. Like, it's just like, I, I was sort of the last one to, to actually manage to like lock down staff jobs and stuff without going to college for journalism with being pretty much self-taught. And still, you, three of the newspapers you worked for closed down. So even yes. saying that, like, there's a big asterisk and star next to that. Yeah, and I did unpaid internships myself. I did a year of that while also working full-time, and it nearly drove me crazy. I tried to go, I went two months without a day off once, and that'll mess your head up. Anybody else, anybody else try to do an unpaid internship while working full-time here? Yeah. Can I give, give an applause for that? That stuff is really hard and it's awful. Um, but yeah, so that is really the difference. Like if you think of yourself because you're surrounded, you're in this sort of class where you think of yourself as on the lower end of the income scale, then you think you understand what it means to be poor sometimes or what it means to not have enough money but you don't, like if you have not ever performed dental surgery on yourself, which is something that one of my housemates did while I was living with her and it was insane, uh, like you don't know. <laughs> uh, and like if you work fast food at some point, do you talk to anybody who does fast food now? Are you close with anyone that does fast food now? See, that's the thing, it's really different now. It's a lot different than it was 20 years ago, even 10 years ago, because of the technology that routinizes these things and makes the schedules completely ridiculous. Who knows what a clopin is? Anybody, who, what's a clopin? 
yeah, if you don't know what a clopin is, then you don't understand fast food right now, or you don't understand what it means to be working class right now. A clopin is where some algorithm schedules you because it's the most efficient way to do things for closing one night very late and then opening the next morning very early with like three hours in between to go home and sleep. It's insane. It's ridiculous. Nobody would have asked you to do that if you were working fast food 20 years ago. But now that schedules are done by algorithms, it sort of like allows people to skip out on responsibility for giving you something, for like giving people embarrassing shifts like that. So yeah, like just try, talk to workers. Like try to just talk to people that are actually doing the jobs that you do, that, that, that like you interact with every day, but you don't, but you aren't like personally friends with any of them. Like that is the only way that you actually can know what it's like to work today because people's musical taste and idea of what work is tends to crystallize like somewhere in your 20s. And if you're not in your 20s right now, that means your idea of what it is to work uh, in the modern economy is probably pretty out of date, honestly. Uh, so it's just something to think about uh, because it's a lot harder than it used to be. It's a lot more constantly, chronically stressful than it used to be. And I have a lot of theories about chronic stress and how, again, the subtitle of my book is how low-wage work is making everybody insane. That is actually kind of literal. Uh, it'll mess your body up, it'll mess your brain up, and uh, I think it explains kind of a lot about what's going on in the world today. Um, but I have talked too long already. But no, no, <laughs> was, this was my point to insert the thing I promised that I would say, which is late-stage capitalism. It's a bitch. Um, so I was waiting all panel for that. Um, I think that the point that Emily makes is really, really important, and it's why it's why the kind of and this this directly relates to what the work that's being done with the view from somewhere, which is it's why the kind of concept of objectivity in newsrooms is actually, and this is a, something that Carla put it this way, is actually solipsism, which means that it, it, it we we think that. We think that we're being objective, but again, if what we're surrounded with is one reality, then we're only being relative to the world in which we exist in, and that definitely needs to change. I want to talk a little bit, because we're almost out of time, amazingly enough. First of all, this is the Story Corps Union walking out, and I just want a big round of applause for everyone who has unionized in the past year and who is working on something like that right now. Oh, yeah. Um, I think one of the ways that we've talked about trying to maybe change this or some solutions and some takeaways is really a, a moment of self-reflection. Um, and that means thinking about how much power you have in this system of media. And that doesn't just mean if you're a manager. It means are you a senior reporter? It means do you have the power to be on hiring committees? It means do you have the power uh, you know, to help out other people who are looking to get a foothold within the, within the industry? I want to ask also if you do have power, has that power made you more likely or less likely to take risks? Because it's been my experience that the more power people get, the harder it is for them to say these things publicly, the more they have to guard themselves, the less we can actually call it what it is. Um, and I think that that's a problem, but I also understand why that happens, right? Like, but again, that also leaves the work of saying these things, doing the work, calling it out to those who are most vulnerable. Um, and if you feel that you have a lack, lack of power, how has that made you vulnerable? And the reason that I ask these questions is I have an intention for you to go forward with. 
conferences are awkward. And um, I know in my first few Third Coast when I didn't know anyone, I felt like everybody was like amazing and cool. And I was like not the cool kid at the table. And, um, and it was hard for me to talk to people and I wanted to run to my room and cry all the time. Um, but I think that it's also an amazing experience to meet all these people and to like get into these conversations. But every time you have a conversation with someone, every time you go and you sit and you talk to someone, I want you to think about the power dynamic in that conversation. If you want to talk about it, that's awesome. Um, if you just want to kind of reflect on it, um, do you have power in that dynamic with that person? And what can you do with that power to change the way that power works? Um, how, if you don't have power, how does that make you feel and how are ways that that person can help shift that balance. Um, we should constantly be thinking about power. It is, that is why every single panel I've ever presented here has the word power in it. Um, it is how our world operates. It is the system and structure under which we are contained and confined. And if we are not reporting on power and confronting it in our own existences, then we are uh, dealing with the biggest of blind spots. So in every interaction, try to take that self-reflection forward and consider how power is operating. And then try to change that. You know, this is, this is something that I think the panel was saying in terms of some of the solutions is reporting from those who are under the constraints of power getting to do the storytelling. And there's the thing in comedy when comedians get it right, where, where, you, where you send your most scathing remarks and your most sort of like blatant put downs, you punch up, right? And I think as journalists and within our own systems, we should be punching up. And once we get high enough, because of the punching up and because we've risen ourselves, we then need to reach up and bring other people up with us. And finally, if we keep punching up, I really do believe we can break kind of a hole in the sky and change the system itself. But that really takes us being conscious of where we stand. Um, so thank you so much. I do have, I have uh, someone that is somewhere who is going to, and I'm going to open up to questions. But first, where's Ursula? Ursula? Oh, there you are. You literally were right in front of me. Hey, Ursula. Hi. Will you introduce yourself? Hi. Uh, I'm Ursula Lawrence. I do research and strategy and planning for SAG-AFTRA, which is a union that represents a bunch of people that are in this room. Yeah. Um, and I just want to, again, congratulate the folks at WHYY on your amazing election victory. Yeah. I think there should be one Yay. Um, but yeah, this is, I just want to say this panel is incredible. Uh, I've been working in and out of unions and also as a writer myself for years. And just the fact that we're even talking about this is so, it's moving for me, honestly. Um, I just, and just what people are saying on the panel about thinking of ourselves as workers and reporting on workers. And um, just, I think it was in Carla's very opening remarks talking about sort of, you know, working class lives and quality of life. and journalists organizing and I think there's a social movement of journalists in this country right now and it's incredible and that is about the profession it is about being a bulwark against commercialization but it's also about having a good life and working people deserve good lives and uh, just reflecting that is so important so um, yeah anyway I just wanted to let people know that I am here like I said I work for SAG-AFTRA but I've worked many years at the Writers Guild East and I was a member of the News Guild so I'm union agnostic um, but I'm also happy to talk to folks about how to organize, what it means to organize, and answer any questions. And um, I think at lunch, I'll be in here at like a table doing an unconferencing, they call it. And you can find me or anytime during the day. Um, and lastly, I know if you're here with a manager or you just don't necessarily want to talk publicly, there are, my cards are also out in the 
section with the clotheslines, and if you can just contact me privately, we can chat whenever. So um, yeah, that's I probably went on too long. No, 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 you're but uh, thank you guys so much for doing this. It's really beautiful panel. And thank you for your work. Okay. Thank you for being there for people to talk to. I was gonna open it up to questions, and I am. So if anybody does have any questions, there is that microphone right there. Feel free to step up. If not, we could keep talking. Oh, yeah, question. Hello, uh, Ronald Young Jr., host producer of Time Well Spent. Please subscribe. Uh, I have a question. So I, w I listen to a lot of podcasts, of course, like we all do. Listen to a lot of public radio, like we all do. And last year was my first third coast. This is my second. And I was probably, I mean, I was a little surprised by the amount of oppressive and discriminatory practices I hear in this field, because as a listener, you know, you hear all these amazing stories that are moving and wonderful, and you assume like, wow, this is such, man, light, fluffy, man, they're taking care of their employees because these guys are putting out great stories and all that. But the surprising thing was, and I know there's people from Gimlin in the room, I hope I don't step in on any toes, was hearing about the struggles about these unions being made when I remember when they were talking about the union at Gimlet being made and talking about the struggle, I was like, wait, struggle? Like, th these guys are making like amazing, heartfelt, emotional stories and there's somebody at the top saying, no, you guys shouldn't unionize. Like, we're not respecting the work that you do. Can y'all talk a little bit, of, little bit about the dichotomy between like being in a, a, org being in a field that's like touchy-feely and very emotional and then having people that are still oppressive and discriminatory at the top that are like, pushing down and stopping you guys from being able to do work. The stick to sports thing. <laughs> RIP. Um, yeah. Uh, I, let me, I'll say something really quickly and then I'll turn it over. And that is, um, one, I think we should be less touchy-feely and emotionally a little bit. But that, that's me. I killed empathy last year. People brought it back afterwards. Um, I've got a plan to kill it again, so stay tuned. Um, uh, but I think I think that we work in a business, and even if you work for a nonprofit, you're working for a business. And the image you present to the world is not the way things are. We didn't talk about Gimlin. That was something on my list to talk about because the other thing we really need to talk about is the fact that like the the tech model of doing things, the um, disrupt and break and run fast and break things model, the, the podcasting is for profit model is here and it scares the shit out of me. Um, and I think that we do need to be having those conversations where we're in a place where like Conan O'Brien is a pot, like that we're, we have been commodified. It is not something that is happening, it is something that has happened and the stakes, that makes the stakes of the conversation we're having even higher because commodification is the same model which leads to white supremacy getting more clicks which leads to Facebook having the algorithms that it has. So um, uh, I think that those who are fighting to do that kind of emotional storytelling that, that connects people um, and exposes power, um, I would love it if we didn't have to stick to sports. But I think that, I think, I don't know. We need to get us as managers. I mean, that's the only solution because I think people somehow, as I said, when they rise in power, they rise in blindness or their ability to do things and people's self-interest rises to the top. Even people... The sit, like even people that I love who have become managers, when they become a manager, I'm like, okay, this is not going the way I thought it would. Because system's gonna system. And I don't, I don't know if I have a good answer for that, but the, the, the disconnect is deep. Um, and you shouldn't have a company that's making as much gimlet, like struggling to have a union for their employees. And you shouldn't have public radio stations bringing in union busters. Like, it's public radio. That's the tweet. Also, it will totally backfire. <laughs> Don't do that. 
Um, I mean, I also, jumping off that touchy-feely thing, like, I worked at a place that was very touchy-feely. StoryCorps makes you cry every Friday. <laughs> Super touchy-feely. And, yeah, aggressive union busting. Like, really awful, intense stuff was happening. And, like, there can be that disconnect because, like, people don't want to relinquish power or give up, be transparent about what they're doing. Like, that's a huge part of it as well. Like, and I think a lot of these, you know, public radio stations and other, like, media outside of unionize are like really calling for transparency in what's happening in their workplaces. And a lot of pushback is coming from people with power not wanting to give up some level of control. So it's, it, 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 that's not an emotional decision for the people who are saying that to their employees. That's a like, that's a financial decision. That's a like, I need to keep power decision. I don't want to give you more money decision. That's not emotional. That's just like, you know. Yeah. So when you think about it, just like, how are how people tend to think of like economics 101 that like you'll find in you know Forbes or something like that the idea of economics 101 is that there is a balance between consumers producers employers and workers right in that like employers want to get as much work as possible out of their workers uh, for as little money as possible workers want to get as much money as possible for as little work as possible and we were talking earlier about like uh, how sort of like everything is arbitrage now, especially like now that computers make it really easy to locate. Like arbitraging is like finding a bubble of inefficiency in a in a market and sort of like sticking a straw in and like sucking everything out, sucking all the money out. So what the funny thing is that in it, like the American dream, like like caring about what you do in like this very like chilly like capitalist equation those things are inefficient those things are nonsense they are something to be arbitraged right they will take i we were talking earlier about how like you see this with teachers constantly how because teachers are willing to care enough to like they care about their students and they because of that they pay you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars for school supplies for their kids. And that is, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars times thousands of people that, like, they don't have, the school system doesn't have to provide, right? Right now, the inefficient part of it is that it is seen as totally normal to, for employers to try to get as much work as possible out of their people for as much, for as little money as possible. But, the problem is that like this sort of like Protestant work ethic that's been part like really deep in the American psyche for hundreds of years means that like if you actually try to operate in that system logically like as a worker and say like to try and get as much money as possible for as little work as possible like you are shamed like you are regarded as like a morally bad person and that's a huge inefficiency that people take advantage of. So I know you love your work, and I know you are making a difference, and that that is rewarding. But don't let them stick straws in you and and just suck out all of that good, like all that good nature, all that American dream, all that whatever, because they will. Because people aren't have no shame about this anymore. Um, don't let them do that to you, because you deserve better. Clap. Hi, uh, I'm Willow, and I have a question about compensating people fairly when you don't have the money to compensate them fairly. So 
Uh, I used to be a public radio reporter. I left that. I launched a podcast. It's an independent podcast. We do narrative stories that require a lot of time. Um, and I mean, I'll be the first to admit that my business partner and I are able to do this because we're in a financial position that we're able to be underpaid. Um, and one of the things that I struggle with uh, is that we simply don't have the money to pay people what they deserve for the stories they're doing for us. I really, really, really wish we did, and we're working hard to try to make it happen, but we don't right now. And I guess my question is like, like on some level that makes me feel like the bad guy, right? Like I'm contributing to this problem of not paying people for things that they should be paid for properly. So I suppose my question is like, does that mean we shouldn't make this show? If you can't pay people what they should be paid to contribute to the project you're doing, should the project not exist? Do you have a plan for like, to be able to pay people better in the future? I mean, we're working on it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's something. I mean, I don't think anybody has an answer for that. God knows. Yeah. Wait, to clarify, do you pay people at all right now? We do. Okay. But it's more of a token than real compensation. I mean, and that's just because of what our budget is at the moment. It's a young show. We're growing, but, you know, growth happens slowly when you're in independent production. There is, an, there is also a difference between taking advantage of people and having the money to do it like, and when you could pay them better and not having the money to do it, which, I don't know, that's a <laughs> distinction for sure. Um, so, you know, I was gonna say, uh, I think it's, and I hope this doesn't sound patronizing, I think it's brave of you to come up and ask that question, given that you're so personally invested in the answer. I find that a lot of people don't have skin in the game. They talk a lot of shit, but they don't have skin in the game. But you, you got some skin in the game. So thank you for asking the question. Um, yeah, no, it shouldn't exist. Sorry to sound, I'm just, I'm just being, I'm not, and, and this is not for you. I think that what you're describing, and you're a small shop, what you're describing, the practices that you're describing, huge corporations are doing that as well. And what's the target here is the practice, not the entity doing it. You should always pay people fairly for their work. I would love to live in a society that agreed with me, period. So let us go forth and try to, oh, one more. Sorry, yeah, I just had a really quick question. Yeah. Um, and I just, uh, my name is Kieran, I work for CBC in Canada. And I was wondering if you could just Hi, talk. Hi, Canada. <laughs> I was wondering if you could talk briefly just about how unpaid labor is like baked into the work that we do. And in particular, in the concept of pitching, I find that whenever I have a pitch for a show, um, like, a, like a, a story for a show, uh, or for a show itself, uh, people say, oh yeah, that's kind of interesting, uh, come back, give me more details. Like, so I go off, I do some work, I come back with more details. They say, okay, well, who are the characters you're gonna hear from? Okay, you go get some of that, you come back, all of that is unpaid. They want you to come with an entire project that's like, okay, this is what's pretty much ready to launch, and that's before day one of getting any green light for funding. And I feel like that's just baked into what we do all the time. I don't know if you guys could comment on that. Yeah, so that's the exploitation. <laughs> I mean, um, so I was at another meeting 
Um, and at this meet, this is back in like May or June. And this was of, um, and I'm bringing it up because there was a, a, an organizer in the room. Um, so this was a meeting of about 20, 25 journalists of color from different um, places all over, the, all over the country. And um, the union organizer, I think at the end, and I think this was someone who helped to organize Google. Remember they did like that walkout like last year or something like that. At the end of it, the union organizer said something really interesting. So everyone had been talking about what happens where they are, and they described everything you just said there. And the union organizer, who's from outside of journalism, was like, man, that's, that's, if, if, I, if this was in my world, we'd be like, oh, yeah, that's wage theft. And she's running down the list of how much all that would not rock in her world. Um, and I think for journalists, I think, and again, this, these are part of the things I thought about what, definitely while I was still working in journalism, but I thought I was crazy a little bit. Um, I think we have to think a lot about the culture of our newsrooms and what we define as being a good journalist. So I've found a lot of the times it's not necessarily the work, like the actual content of the work. I've found that a good journalist has been used to um, define someone who's able to stick it through. The person who's able to work those unpaid jobs, they're valorized. Oh, you really want it. I know that you really want it because you have four unpaid internships. Again, that they've switched the focus. They're not looking at the work anymore. We're looking, now the culture is something where it's like, you know, if you can do that, you're showing me that you really want it. And these are managers who hire people who are thinking this way. What you're describing, I mean, it's, it's baked in. The exploitation is baked in. And for someone who, and the only people who can do that kind of work, I remember saying um, when I was doing, I was on a fellowship at the Nation Institute, which is now type. And there was a fire that I think is at UMIS put out a report that was, they did a, a, re, a research report in like 2014 or 2015, looking at uh, an independent investigative reporters. On average, the the reporter put out $5,000 of their own money to get the story done. Yep. On average. Now, I'm a working, I well, let's be honest. I use working class. I don't want to say poor, right? Because the worst thing in America, you can murder somebody. The worst thing in America is to be poor. Okay? That's the country we live in. But if I had known, if someone like me, if I had known that, before I started pursuing journalism, that five thousand that that journalism basically expects you to subsidize the work. If I had known that, would I have gotten on this journey? Would I have started? You know, I used to um, back in the day. I used to go to my friends worked at schools like free lunch schools in Harlem or Brownsville, blah blah blah. And I would go and go during career day, and I would talk to them. And it got to a point where I stopped going. So when my teacher friends asked me to come, I would say, no, nah, I can't. I can't in good conscience sit down and tell this kid, yeah, you should pursue this career. They shouldn't. It's not meant for them. It will only make them more poor than they already are. And so I stopped going. You know, I think what I'm saying sounds really harsh. It sounds harsh to me. And I know it must sound really harsh to you. But I think that we have to get real honest and transparent about what this industry is if we care about our democratic mandate. And that's what it comes back to me about. 
the democratic mandate that we have. And that, that's why I'm in this field. That's why I seem to can't leave. <laughs> I tried to get out in the, yeah. I mean, I, don't, I can't think of a better place to end it on than that. So think about the power you have. Think about the ways we can punch up and change the system. Um, the problem is, if that is the case, who's reporting? And we know what the answer is. So we can bemoan the lack of diversity all we want to. We can create all of the directories that we want to, but we're not going to change it if we don't change the fundamental exploitation that is baked in. I know that's an impossible conundrum to leave you with, but I leave you with it. Um, thank you so much for listening. <laughs>